but it really comes down to, instead of saying like, wow, there's something really messed up about our culture that a grown man would hit on like a fifth grader with boobs. Instead of that, we're like, how do we get this fifth grader with boobs to look as much like a little child as possible? Instead of saying like some 10 year olds have boobs, like that's a normal way to have a body. We make it the child's problem which then sets girls up to feel like my whole life I'm just in this race to like control my body as much as possible, take up as little space as possible. You're listening to the first ever live recording of Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Solsmith. And I'm Angela Garbez. <laughs> That's right. We're here in Seattle, Washington, live at Town Hall. <laughs> Now you know why Angela is the co-host tonight. (laughs) And hype woman. (laughs) So yeah, Angela is here because we are in Seattle. Thank you, Town Hall. Thank you all for coming out. And yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Let's make a podcast. So as you can see, we are up, for those who are listening, there's a large projection of Virginia's book, Fat Talk, here. So we're here to talk about Virginia's book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. But we're also going to talk about bodies, and we're going to talk about big life transitions. But we'll put a little pin in that for the moment. I had the pleasure of reading Fat Talk Mm -hmm. before it came out. And I remember being so blown away by it. And I think in the blurb I wrote, like, Virginia Soulsmith is a visionary. But it's true, because Virginia took so many disparate things that I understood about American culture and about bodies and about diet culture and put it all together. And one of the things that I was just saying to her, we had dinner beforehand, we were talking about the male gaze. Boo, you can boo for things like that. It might come up a few times. But I was like, oh, when we talk about the male gaze, we're talking about American culture in many ways. We're talking about diet culture. And what Virginia helped me see, which she threaded together beautifully through research and reportage, is that, you know, American culture is diet culture is white supremacist culture, is anti-fat culture, is all of these things. Like, when we talk about one, they're inextricably linked. And no matter how much we would like sometimes to separate them out, and the powers that be would like us to separate them out or not talk about them at all, they're so deeply linked. And she presented it in such a way that I was like, well, there's no turning back now, right? Like, I see it differently. And the other thing that I love about this book is it's about parenting, and I'm the mother of children, but I desperately needed this book for myself, right? There was so much that we, as the grown-ups, have to unlearn. There's a lot of parenting and reparenting that we have to do for ourselves around diet culture and anti-fat bias. And so Virginia's work has been very meaningful to me. I was so honored that she asked me to read it. I was so honored when Virginia bloomed my book, which I asked her after... I think we we had a cute meeting story, actually. Um, (laughs) We met in our Instagram DMs because... I I slipped, I think I slipped into your DMs or did you slip into mine? You slipped into mine, but I had posted a picture when I was working on Essential Labor, The Eating Instinct, which is Virginia's first book, which nobody should sleep on. Yes. Shout out for Eating Instinct. Real ones, no. It was a huge part of my research process and informed several chapters of my book, but I had posted, you know, like a behind-the-scenes process shot, and one of Virginia's friends had sent it to her. That's right, and was yeah. like, 
Angela Garbez read your book. <laughs> and it was a really big deal because Angela is a really big deal. So then we had, it was like a real meet cute. We were like, no, I'm a huge fan. No, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> but now we get to be on stage. That was part yeah. of our like year. Mutually fangirl. Yeah, becoming friends. Yeah. So I would like to ask you, we are going to talk about BLT, Big Life Transitions. Big Life Transitions. <laughs> I just coined that right now. Um, but one of the hugest transitions, and I know this as a writer, is when you transition from being in intense research and writing mode, which is private. I mean, you have a podcast and a newsletter, but it's very intense, private work. Like, sometimes I feel like until the book is out, I'm just sitting on my ass. Like, that's all I've been doing. Absolutely. <laughs> just thinking and having thoughts. And what is it like to have published a book that was an instant New York Times bestseller, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, like, that's not, we don't live for all outward measures of success, but that's right. a pretty big one, right? And any writer who tells you it's not a big deal is lying. Is lying through their um, teeth, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's an intense time of having that come out. I'd love to know, like, what does it feel like to have been living with this book out in public, to have it be a, a transformative book for your career? And yeah, what's the transition of book promotion been like? Well, some really good advice you gave me back in the spring was like, you won't really know how to answer that question for like three years. So <laughs> I don't totally know. <laughs> but I mean, it's been a really surreal year for a lot of reasons, a really amazing year. But yeah, it was going from being very private with this conversation to being very public with this conversation, which of course was the goal of having the conversation for other <laughs> people publishing to come a book. to yeah. the conversation. But what I was saying to you before is like, obviously while researching the book, I was pretty sure anti-fat bias was a thing. But then publishing a book about anti-fat bias and going out to talk about it as a fat person it really confirmed for me <laughs> that anti-fat yeah. bias is alive and well. Mostly in the men who email and send me DMs and have comments. I was prepared for it. I think it's... Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who writes about fatness. Yes. And, and is a woman. Not being mean to people who are fat. Yeah. Not treating them like they're less than is familiar with, yes. you know, you expect a certain amount of feedback. You do. And you trolling, do. I guess yes. we would say. Yeah. yeah. But you're still somehow surprised by how personal it can feel at times, which isn't to say it's necessarily upsetting. Like Steve on the internet telling me that he doesn't find me attractive is not something that's keeping me up at night. Like it's okay. Like the DMs that are like men don't like fat chicks. <laughs> I didn't actually write this book for them. It's okay. <laughs> Not looking for that. Although I do identify as a fat person and have lived the last decade or so in a fat body. You know, I was a skinny kid and a thin younger adult through intensive dieting efforts, not through any genetics or biology. But so I grew up with a lot of thin privilege, which is a concept I talk about in the book, which is basically the experience of the world being built for your body. You fit into the seats on airplanes. You fit into, you know, chairs here are supporting your body. You're not worried when you go to an event like this, will the chair hold me? And I'm still what's called small fat, which is on the like lower end of the plus side spectrum. So there's a lot of ways that being fat doesn't negatively impact my daily life because I'm not experiencing the constant impression that folks in bigger bodies are experiencing. But going out as a public fat person kind of inches you a little more over into that. So it just gave me a firsthand appreciation of like, this is what we're asking people to do all the time without making them New York Times bestsellers, like just because they are bodies in the world, just because they live in fat bodies. 
They are going into doctor's offices unable to access health care. They are you know, being turned away and told to lose weight before they're given fertility treatments or other basic medical care. They're earning less at jobs. And for our kids in schools, they're experiencing bullying and discrimination on a daily basis. So yeah, it really just kind of drove all that home. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Steve on the internet. Yeah, thanks, Steve. <laughs> Will you share the story about, obviously you did a lot of interviews, including Fresh Air with Tanya Mosley. Yes. But you told me that, I don't know if this was, I'm assuming it was local news. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you it were was talking to Chicago Morning News. Okay, yes. Yeah. name them. <laughs> yes, an interview I did, it was a live TV interview for the book, and the thin white male news anchor audibly sighed. <laughs> so are you saying like obesity isn't a real problem like he was so upset to have me there people really don't want to hear this stuff no you know like the average size of like females in america is a 16 or an 18 right there is this idea of like the standard of beauty which is thinness which is whiteness like we're coming for you, right? Yeah, like that was a you. construct, yeah. and it's falling away. Yeah, in the book, I unpack everything that's wrong with the BMI, but 60% of Americans have an overweight or obese BMI. So yeah, in terms of bias, this is everyone. This is not a tiny, marginalized group of people who, even if it was tiny, wouldn't deserve the treatment they get, of course, right. but like, this is everyone. No, it's not. Like, this is the majority of <laughs> yes. the population. Yes, we can't pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah. This is, yeah, humans and bodies. So we spent some time on, like, Steve on the internet, but I would love to hear, like, it's, by and large, the reception and the process of being out in the world with this book is, I'm hoping, has been positive. Yes. So I wondered if you could just share a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, that has been the overwhelming experience is, oh, God, I mean, I'll, like, get teary just thinking about the emails I've gotten from parents saying, this helps me think about how to keep my kids safe in the body that they have, how to advocate for them at the pediatrician's office. You know, it's marketed as a parenting book, but people saying, I don't have kids, but this is helping me, like, understand stuff that I experienced in my own childhood. And, you know, understand that, you know, one person said to me, like, for so long, I understood my body as a problem, that it was my job and my responsibility to make myself fit in, as opposed to understanding, like, no, this is a whole system that wasn't built for my body, and that's a systemic problem. Even more exciting, too, is hearing from doctors. Oh, yeah. Hearing from, you know, medical researchers saying, like, yes, you're right, we have not been paying attention uh-huh. to the impact of anti-fat bias on people's health. When we are studying diets, we are never controlling for the fact that, you know, when we're documenting health benefits from weight loss, we're never documenting the fact that if you lose some degree of weight, you will experience less anti-fatness, and mm-hmm. that might be some of the reasons that your health appears, quote-unquote, better. Right. Because the world is now treating you, because suddenly you're able to access the health care you weren't able to access before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's opening doors. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's not, well, how do we make everyone thinner so that they can be treated better? <laughs> maybe we flip that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's really like a dream, as writers who work in this sort of space of sort of service journalism, but also wanting to like, I don't know, give voice to these things and be like, hey, this is going on, like this is important, this is significant, like that feeling of, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'm like, oh, I'm part of changing the cultural conversation. Like, it's so nebulous, like what is that, right? But like hearing from someone like that, like that's an issue of like gatekeeping. Yeah. That's an issue of like, there is like, it's, 
it's small, but it's significant, right? That idea of like change happening within those institutions yeah. is huge. Yeah. yeah, if we can change the way weight and health gets studied to always make like any study on weight and health has to examine the presence of weight stigma and the impact on people's mm -hmm. health, has to look at, you know, when people go on diets and lo lose weight in the short term and you get excited because their biomarkers improve, what happens to them in five years when the weight's been regained, right. both in terms of physical health, but also in terms of things like disordered eating relationships right. and, you know, increased rates of eating disorders. Yeah. And none of that is getting tracked most of the time because of all of this baked in bias that says, well, fat people must want to lose weight. That must make them healthier. And it's impossible. Also, I'm thinking about when I wrote my first book, which was about pregnancy, right? And like, why don't we know anything about pregnancy? Why hasn't it been studied? And the idea that just having a fat body is like an aberration, right? Not yeah. just like a variance of a body or just having a different body, right? I learned this when writing Like a Mother that it wasn't until 1993 that Congress passed a law saying that if you receive funding for clinical trials from like the federal government, which is most clinical trials and anything in a research-based institution, you have to include females and people right. of color. So like our very definition, not even of health and wellness, of like what a human being is, doesn't include most of us yeah, who are right. here. And so we're up against really nothing less than that. Yeah. So it is really heartening to hear about change yeah, coming I mean, from that. Most studies that are done on anorexia nervosa are actually most eating disorders use BMI cutoffs when they screen for applicants. Mm -hmm. So people with a BMI above 25, which is the cutoff for the, quote, normal range, don't get included in the study because they think that fat people don't get eating disorders. So then we have no research on the fact that actually that happens quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But it's because when fat people engage in disordered eating relationships, their doctors are likely to congratulate us, ask us to do it more, right. ask us to go further with it. And so, you know, that bias right there is caused, I mean, that's people's lives. We're talking about, you know, one of the most deadly mental health conditions. All right. On that cherry note. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about our own, like, big life transitions and how our bodies are doing yes. amid that? Because it takes a little bit of what's hard and what's good and what is just showing up in our <laughs> what's just vessels here. every day. Yeah. Let's do yeah. it. Do you want to ask me? Should I ask you? <laughs> what's going on in your life, Virginia? Well... <laughs> So we have continued, like, throughout the year, lots of text messages and DMs about, like, these changes that we've made in our life, which mm -hmm. is that I'm coming up on w one year of sobriety, which, Thank you. which I Amazing. decided, like, I made that change for a number of reasons, one being that I realized I was an alcoholic, <laughs> but so that, that's big, that's big, so I'm, like, 11 months sober, and there's so many changes that show up in my body. Mm -hmm. And Virginia's big news, if you don't know, I'll let you say it. Oh, um, I'm getting divorced. So that's a big change. Woo! Yeah, you can clap. That's right. You can clap that one too. Yeah. Thank you all for not just immediately going, oh. <laughs> it's a hard thing, but a good thing. So yeah. I'd love to ask you, like, where does the experience of separating and getting a divorce and being in the process of that, like, how does your body feel in that, and where do you see that showing up? I mean, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast already, but, you know, there has been this real 
freedom in how I feel about my body now. I'm not going to talk negatively about my ex-husband, who's a really good guy and a good dad, but it's just about, like, suddenly my body's not in relationship to anyone else. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's also being out of the early years of motherhood, where your body belongs to your children so intensely. I mean, I think that that's, like, a huge piece of it. Yes, we don't talk enough about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my youngest child is now five, and she and I are still very close, but it's different. It's just different. I'm not wiping anything anymore. (laughs) Like, there's a lot less contact with fluids and feeling like I my body is like I'm allowed to pee with the door closed which feels big you know (laughs) like this is like an established thing now that I'm not like you know companies so you have that freedom from your children and then now there's this yeah there's just this added layer which is really interesting and you know and it wasn't immediate like I think at first this was the male gaze thing we were talking about I was very aware of when I would be like alone in my house, when my kids would be at their dad's now, you know, the first few weekends, I was felt like I was like watching myself. Like I was like observing my body still. Maybe my brain was like, well, no one's watching you anymore. So I will, what like, there's just someone should still be watching, right? Because this, especially for women, this is how we're conditioned to always assume our bodies will be somewhat objectified and self-objectify our bodies. Right. This is diet culture teaching us that like, even when you're just existing in your home, just like watching Somehow TV on the Somehow how couch, you look still really matters. Still matters. Like some part of my brain had like really bought into that. So, you know, despite the fact that it's been almost a decade since I was last actively dieting and trying to make myself smaller, like it helped me identify that there's this way that I've still been feeling like I need to contain or control or, you know, the suspect in my body. So that's been really interesting. I mean, the other piece that's interesting is... If you get on divorce talk, which I don't recommend we all do, (laughs) but if you're on TikTok and you start getting fed divorce content, you're going to come across the revenge body concept pretty fast. Tell us more. There was an audible like... (laughs) People had a big feeling about that. (laughs) So the revenge body is basically the idea that like as soon as you get divorced, you need to start losing weight and be as hot as possible so that you can like get your next man and also make your ex feel bad, I guess. And yeah, wow, I just want no part of that. (laughs) I know that's not anything I'm interested in. And what's really insidious about the revenge body is that it's often the narrative is, I was so stressed out by my divorce that I started losing weight and then wasn't that great. And shouldn't I like ride that train all the way? Shouldn't I ride that unhealthy train into the sunset? Correct, correct. Like, thank God I went through this trauma that caused me to lose weight. And now I can keep losing weight. But isn't part of, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't part of getting a divorce so you can like worry less about what that person thinks of you? I mean, one would hope. One would hope that would be like a big, a big part of it. But when trauma equals weight loss, we consider that a good good thing. right. I've even had people say, like, oh, when I got divorced, like, the weight just fell off me. I was, like, so stressed out. I just couldn't eat. I couldn't eat. I can eat still. (laughs) I'm doing great with eating. I'm really doing it multiple times a day. (laughs) Like, lots of different food groups. It's going really well, and I'm really happy about that. One might say it's helping you survive. Yeah, and I'm Not just just divorce, (laughs) but life. (laughs) When did we decide that any situation that makes you not eat, that this is somehow the right way to respond to stress... 
that this is like a desired effect of stress, that it would like hone your body down and some like, you know. So yeah, I want no part of it. I'm really happy I'm still eating. I mean, I understand that there's a spectrum of experiences, right? Like I've had friends get divorced and say like this appetite loss is super scary and I don't know what's going on and they don't want to be congratulated for that. But the other thing we often hear about fat people, right, is like, well, what trauma? What trauma caused that body? And so why are we congratulating people for achieving revenge body, but demonizing people who respond to trauma? I mean, I feel like maybe this is... Well, so I'm feeling like I wonder, like, we should be asking thin people that. Like, what trauma caused this body? Right? Right? What is this about? What racist, oppressive system caused this? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And well, I mean, I think the bottom line is like, don't talk about people's bodies when they're going through big life stuff. Or maybe just don't congratulate people's bodies ever. Like, don't assume that weight loss is always good. Don't assume that weight gain is always bad. Like, I think that's something I think about a lot as I get older. Like, I used to have this like fixed idea of what my body was. Mm -hmm. You know, pregnancy will really do a number on you with that, right? (laughs) Turns out nothing's. But now I'm like, I'm always like, oh, like. I have seen my friends go through so, like, our bodies change all the time for different reasons. And, like, now that I'm, like, in this nebulous perimenopausal zone, I feel like my body's changing in ways. And I was like, oh, it's always meant to do this. It's constantly meant to do it. And so the idea of tying anything, your body size, to, like, any sort of reflection of, like, how you are is flawed from the beginning, right? Well, this is in the chapter on puberty in the book I get into this because the narrative we give kids about puberty is really rooted in anti-fatness because we basically say to kids, like, it's going to be awful. Your body's going to change. You're not going to know what's going on. Like, it's so bad. It's so scary. Periods, boobs, whatever. All of this is terrible and to be avoided. And we really, like, idealize a skinny child's body, which, first of all, like, not all kids are, you know, like, there's lots of fat kids before puberty. (laughs) Like, their bodies are great and then I remember this as a former skinny kid like being afraid of the puberty waking is being built up as this huge scary thing and what if instead we reframe that narrative right from the get-go with kids and said yeah bodies are changing forever you're going to go through a huge amount of change in the next few years you're still going to be you some of it's going to be weird some of it's going to be great your experience is your experience to young females and girls to be like, this is your body helping you take up space in the world. Yes. Right? Like, Because yes. that's the other fear is, right, you get too big, and I think that's tied to that. We're like, we don't want the girls to get too oh, yeah. big oh, and, for sure. you know, like, and demand things. And well, it's fear of fatness. It's also fear of sexuality. Yeah. Like, you know, girls becoming more easily sexualized. There's just, like, a lot of layers there, but it really comes down to, instead of saying, like, wow, there's something really messed up about our culture that a grown man would hit on, like, a fifth grader with boobs. Instead of that, we're like, how do we get this fifth grader with boobs to look as much like a little child as possible? Instead of saying, like, some 10-year-olds have boobs. Like, that's a normal way to have a body. We make it the child's problem, which then sets girls up to feel like, my whole life, I'm just in this race to, like, control my body as much as possible, take up as little space as possible. I was thinking about what you were saying about, like, hearing from a reader and something that I, I don't know, I think I heard it, like, or I had this thought, like, six or seven years ago, and it's a thing that I come back to all the time, which is, like, a a body and a person is never a problem. Yeah. I wish, I don't know, I feel like I I needed to hear that, like, every day as a child, but I think about it now. It's like, no, there's, there's other factors, right? Like, it's never just you. It's never inherently you. It's not a thing that you need to fix. No, no, and I think this is, like, The number one message I hope anyone who either is a parent or works with kids in any way takes away from the book is like, 
we want, and that I hope any like kids who read the book at some point take away, is that like we want kids to understand their body is never a problem to be solved. Your body is to be trusted. This is for kids in all body sizes. This isn't like asterisk yeah. as long as you stay thin. And the problem yeah. is, is right now so many of us, because of the culture we live in, the water we're all swimming in, we're always attaching an asterisk. We're putting these conditions on who's allowed to right. take up space, who's allowed to feel safe in their bodies, who's allowed to love their bodies. And that's, that's the fundamental thing we need to change. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to this idea, though, that you're like, your body is yeah. just for you. Yeah, and taking up space. Yeah. Are you, like, is it, does that freedom feel like, like relief? Like, yeah. Does it look like sweatpants? What does it look like? <laughs> <laughs> like, like on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah, for sure sweatpants, yeah. It's a thing I didn't realize I was missing. You know, and so I don't even know exactly what it looks like yet, Mm -hmm. I think. But I am really enjoying the idea that it is just for me, that there is no external gaze on it. I mean, other than, well, all of you right now, I guess. But But when I'm not on a stage, you know, and I'm enjoying, like, I was going to say invisible, but I don't mean, like, I want to be invisible, but, like, the sort of privilege of a little bit of invisibility, I guess. I like being past a stage of life where like walking down the street like it's a nice thing about middle age that you're no longer constantly receiving feedback yes. from people yeah. that like you're no longer even being perceived by right. lots of people right so. <laughs> the lack of perception is obviously rooted in ageism and terrible but also sort of nice sometimes <laughs> i'm gonna start with the positive but since yes. i got sober Guys, my skin is really, it's really looking good. It um, is really glowing. I also just got back from vacation, yeah, so I have she's a tan. Like amazingly tan. And I'm, but it yeah. is like, I look in the mirror and I'm like, whoa, like this is actually, I'm not putting like all this stuff into my system that is like manifesting in my face. Like it's less puffy. It's, it's still very round, but it's not as puffy. It's not as pink. And like, it makes me feel really good. And it's a totally vain, silly thing. And it's not being perceived by anyone but myself in the mirror every day. <laughs> and it feels really good. It's giving you joy. But the thing that's interesting is, like, I didn't realize it until it didn't happen. Like, I think, like, this is, it's the, like what you said, the water we swim in. Like, it hadn't occurred to me. I did not get sober to lose weight. But I, until I didn't miraculously lose, like, 30 pounds, I was like, oh, I thought I would lose well, weight. Well, the trauma thing, right? Like, we think, like, oh, we go right. through these stressful things and we just won't be able to eat and we'll be so, you know, like... Yeah, no, and actually it was the opposite. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not... Weight isn't just falling off of my body. That's interesting. Also, it's kind of a cliche, but it is true that... Um, I don't know if it's to replace the sugar that used to be part of drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I'm, like, I'm definitely, like ice cream with hot fudge every night guy now. Love it. (laughs) And I was like, well, maybe that's also part of why I'm not losing weight. But the idea that anything about anything, like it's a change in my body, but the idea that sobriety would, I would be associating that with weight or thinking about it. Like it was just really interesting to me the way I felt like it was like an, I was like playing myself. Yeah. Where I was like, oh, like some little part of me thought this was going to happen and was slightly disappointed yeah. that it didn't. I mean, I feel like I've dealt with it and there's so many more pluses. Right, right. You know, yeah. in my life, but we I like certainly... you being alive and all, but yeah. What? <laughs> I said we like you being alive. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I like myself being alive. I yeah. like self-compassion for myself and yeah. all these other things, other big bonuses. But yeah, like I think it's also I know that sobriety is a huge investment in my health, mental and physical and like this idea of wellness. And how it's just like, 
wellness automatically on some level is linked to thinness. Yeah. And even I, who I'm like, I reject this frame. I reject all of that. Like, but it's like, oh, it's the call is coming from inside <laughs> it's the coming house. Coming from like, inside. <laughs> so, like, it's very humbling. It's it's that insidious. I mean, think of the way we're taught to approach weight in pregnancy, right? Like, it's yeah. you're going to gain this weight, not too much weight, but some approved amount of weight during right. pregnancy, and then you're going to lose it. Like, of course, and people say, like, breastfeed, so the weight falls off, and like, which yeah. is a total bullshit myth. Like, <laughs> we are taught to only embrace change if it equals thinness. Yeah. There's just a lot of transitions in life that yeah. we think should automatically lead to thinness right. in this way. It is this insidious narrative that keeps coming up over and over. And it's, I think, helpful just to notice. And, and like, not beat yourself up. You were programmed to think that way. Yeah, like, I wanted this thing, and then I was like, oh, well, it's, yeah. I could stop eating ice cream. <laughs> or but also that just, sounds like, crazy. I could spend my time thinking about this thing that I realized I wanted, or I could enjoy every good thing that's happened. And I think that's a lot of, I mean, it is sort of similar to like postpartum stuff where it's like there's pressure that I think comes mostly from the outside or this idea to lose that weight, you know? Like if it was me, I'd be like, just leave me alone to like, not just date, but continue my like fourth trimester right, in this right. like crazy right. period of Try time to get where, some sleep. where my yeah. body is like directly tied to another person. It's like, just leave me alone. Yeah. Let me have this body that's just for that. Yes. Um, but instead, you start thinking about like yes. external things. And I feel like there's some fantasy too that like these changes will equal more time to work out, more time to like be healthy in these very wellness culture ways. Mm-hmm. Even though the reality, as anyone who's like gone through a big life transition, is like, this is not the greatest time to adopt like an aggressive new workout routine. <laughs> like, your days are probably chaotic, and maybe you yeah. need more downtime and more rest. And so I think it's tied into like hustle culture and productivity yes. culture. You know that like somehow, whatever changes we're going through, only like get gold stars yeah. if you can also prove them with your body. People who know me know that like one of my lines is, I work really hard. And I'm never trying to work harder, right? Like, I feel like I grew up in a very, like, you have to, like, excel, excel, excel sort of household. And I'm, like, low-key lazy, I feel, like, or I thought, like, compared to my family, I had a lot of shame around that. And now I'm like, no, I have a lot of output and I need time to recover and restore. And, like, the first month of being sober, I was like, I am a baby who is feeling all these things that I have purposely been trying not to feel. And all I can do is cry and take naps like a baby. Yeah, yeah, that's And right. I did that a lot. And one thing that I realized going forward is like part of my like healing and taking care of myself is like I'm resting yes. and chilling out a lot more. And I'm lucky at this particular place in my career and time that I can do those things. But I have struggled with feeling guilty. Like yeah, I'm like, oh, same. I should be doing more. But actually, rest is really suiting me so super yeah yeah. and I feel like a season of rest is coming for you I would like I would am available for a season of rest (laughs) I am clearing my schedule you'll have a custody agreement where you'll have some time by yourself yeah (laughs) for resting you know prior to the separation I would get like a weekend all to myself like once or twice a year you know it'd be like this rare thing and so you would do this maybe not everybody does this but I would do this thing of like all the things I don't normally get time to do, I'm going to cram them into this weekend and I'm going to like have lunch with a friend and like do some kind of shopping I can't do with kids around and also clean out a bunch of closets and like 
organize half the house. And, and like, I did spend my first couple of solo weekends like organizing a lot of closets. And then I was like, what am Why I doing, am I doing this? this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're a stress organizer, you get it. Like, there's something very cathartic about doing that. Yeah. But um, yeah, then I was just like, oh, wow, I'm really tired and I don't want to make plans. Yeah. And I just. Definitely not a stress organizer. Yeah. And I'm well, like, Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'm stressed, I'll come to your house. Uh, it's, a, it's a weird compulsion, and it's often quite helpful, but, yeah, then I would be like, my kids would get back, and I would be exhausted, because I, like, yeah. did stuff all weekend. Yeah. And I realized that, like, no, I just need to... I think, again, it was the self-objectification. I was like, I'll judge me if I just, like, lie on the couch and watch Good Girls on Netflix. What trauma caused this stress organizing? <laughs> She's like, forget anti-fatness. We need to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, I don't really know. It was sort of a rhetorical question for like laughs, so you don't don't feel like you <laughs> no, need we'll to answer that. No, we'll unpack it now. Let's do yeah, it. Like, if you want to go there, I'm here for you. No, I was like, what did cause it? I'll book it for therapy next week. It's making a note. Making a note. We'll get into it. Do you want to talk a little bit about dinner before we go to audience questions? Yeah, let's talk a little about yeah. dinner. Dinner is this thing that we have a lot of ideals and expectations around, and. I think both of us have also been talking about how big life transitions can really fuck with your expectations of dinner and what you thought you needed to be doing about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a household where both my parents worked full time, but we had dinner together every night. This is wild And I realized that I bring all of that to dinner every night and expecting like a four-year-old and a five-year-old to be like... (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? No. I would love to sit at the table and discuss current events, yeah. Yeah, no, instead they're like, doing, I'm like, can't you just stay at the table? And my husband is like, literally they can't. Literally, <laughs> they don't have the motor skills or coordination. Yes, but so one of the things that I've gotten from your work is this idea of, like, what is dinner about, right? Like, what is our real goal for dinner? Yeah, I mean, it's diet culture. Yeah. That's the goal. So it's thinness. <laughs> there is all this research that families that eat dinner together regularly, kids do better in school and have, like, lower substance abuse issues. And, like, you know, there's all these benefits. But every media story you see about the importance of family dinner leads with less childhood obesity. Like, that's, like, the big headline always. So right there, you have, like, embedded into the premise that we are doing this to prevent fatness or correct fatness. And some really interesting research I looked at for the book compared the family dinner experiences of thin kids and fat kids. And they found that for thin kids, yeah, I really did, like, give them more chances to talk to their parents and, like, their confidence was higher and their grades were better in school and all these things. But for fat kids, family dinner was a nightmare because it was like, are you sure you're going to eat that? You already had enough pasta. How about you have the broccoli? No no dessert tonight. Like, you know, it was this constant policing. Or you can only have dessert if you eat right. XYZ. Right. You need three more bites of this, and then you can have, like, one small cookie, you know? And so it was this constant policing and micromanaging of their bodies, of their understanding of themselves. Like, are you really still hungry? Can you trust yourself? And so when I saw that study, I started thinking about, like, okay, so there's this embedded anti-fatness in the way we've emphasized the importance of dinner, of family dinner. But there's also, I mean, there's a lot of classism, there's a lot of other privilege involved, like having the time to cook, having the budget. It's also assuming a nuclear family. Assuming which is a nuclear not family. how most people live these yes, days. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, so many different pieces of it started to seem really messed up. But particularly on the body piece, I think like if we want our kids to grow up 
being able to say no in situations where it's good to be able to say no. You know, I have two daughters. I'm thinking about teenage years and yeah. parties and dating and whatever. I want them to be able to say no. And if that means they get to say no to me at the dinner table about broccoli and that is respected, and so they know their no really matters, that yeah. is, like, really worth them not eating some broccoli. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, All right, so a couple of questions are rolling in. Someone is asking, let's see here. When we talk about all of these intersecting oppressions, it's impossible to not see the roots of them all are capitalism. Mm -hmm. How can we fight to change the system of capitalism rather than just try and make it a kinder oppressive system? Just starting off with a softball. Yeah, thank you for that very low stakes question. I feel no pressure whatsoever. I'm just going to solve capitalism now. Yeah, I mean, that's a big one. I'm just going to be clear. Virginia and I don't know how to solve capitalism. No, it's not but, really my expertise. But I'm interested in this idea of like, I don't want to just make a kinder oppressive system. I think that I feel really implicated in that. Um, yeah. Because I think that's something that a lot of us do. But um, I mean, do you agree? Like the root of this is... Yeah, I mean, at the root of this is a $60 billion industry that wants to sell you weight loss drugs and diet books and plans and all the rest of it. And so, you know, I am really wary of making this anyone's personal responsibility. Like, I don't think that's a really useful model for social change. I think we need systemic change. We need, as I yes. talked about, the research models to be different. We need healthcare to be radically different, all of that. Because right now, basically, like, medical research is propping up the diet industry, is propping up for-profit healthcare. Like, it's all intertwined. So we need, yes, like, a big dismantling of all of this. But on a personal level, like, one thing I do is, like, when I do want to exercise, like, I don't give money to gyms anymore. Mm -hmm. Which is not to say there's not, there are great fat-positive gyms, but not where I live. <laughs> so they do not get my money because... I no longer want to have the experience of like tuning out the anti-fatness all around me yeah. in that kind of experience. And so I'd rather give it to, I do Lauren Lavelle's online workouts, shout out to Lauren, but you know, any like fat positive creator of color, someone doing awesome work, I'd rather support. So I think it can be liberating to realize like I don't have to keep paying for this in the ways that we are often unconsciously and deliberately paying for it. Yeah. But the reason I'm really wary of saying, like, this is all on us to, like, make better consumer decisions is, like, one of the key ways anti-fatness plays out is by limiting the options of fat people when it comes to, like, clothing, for example, is a huge one. And so I am not going to demonize any fat person who's buying fast fashion because, you know, some companies that have really terrible workers' rights practices and are a part of the problem in all these other ways are some of the few brands making their size. Right, or also fast fashion is what's affordable for people. Right. it's affordable, so it's really complicated. But like, to whatever degree your privilege allows you making different choices, that's a good place to start. I mean, I, I think it's worth just repeating, you know, there's like no ethical consumption yeah. in capitalism, right? Until we can dismantle the entire system, we're all complicit and implicated in a certain way, right? And I think we can make better choices within that. It's not on us to bring down the whole thing. And I think making good choices where you can, making deliberate choices where you can, I think is really important. We're just going to do a few little like, quick ones here. Okay. How would you discuss the health effects of ultra-processed foods with a child without relying on anti-fat tropes? Okay, so the thing to understand about ultra-processed food... Oh, this is a hard one to do quickly. All right. If you want the deep dive on this, I did two whole podcast episodes on ultra-processed foods. You can find it in the Burnt Toast Podcast archives. 
But the short version is to understand that a lot of the research on ultra-processed foods is really in its infancy. A lot of the reasons these foods get demonized is not because of their nutritional makeup. It's because these are the foods that we associate with poverty and with people of color and fatness. And so there is a lot of bias bound up in the fact that we are demonizing ultra-processed foods as unhealthy. If you are on a budget, if you are very time-pressed, if you need to eat something quickly and this is what's available to you, an ultra-processed food is a healthy choice. It is going to always be more healthy to feed yourself than to not feed yourself. It's always going to be healthier to feed your child than to not feed your child. And we really need to keep this in mind, especially those of us who are white and privileged, when we start talking about the problems with ultra-processed foods, because they actually serve like a real good in the world. That's not the same thing as me thinking the corporations that make them are good, I don't. So in terms of talking to kids, all foods are good foods. All foods play a role. There's no reason not to eat any particular food unless you have a life-threatening allergy to it. There's no need to demonize these foods. So I don't think it's something you actually need to overly discuss with kids. You can just say, like, it's not good for us to eat the same foods all day, every day. We'd get sick if we ate broccoli for every meal, just like we'd get sick if we ate Cheetos for every meal. As you've been traveling and promoting Fat Talk, are there things that you've heard or that are helpful supports for fat parents raising fat kids? Any highlights to share? Well, I think finding community is super important and helpful. And I think whether that's, I mean, ideally in-person community, but often, you know, online community is really important. Well, the Burnt Toast newsletter is a really good resource. <laughs> Sorry. True. Conveniently also true. It's true, yes. Um, but I think where fat parents often experience the most bias is when they go to the pediatrician's office because pediatricians have high levels of anti-fat bias and there's a lot of judgment if you have a fat kid and you're a fat parent, it's like a whole situation. So this sounds ridiculous, but like bringing a thin friend to the doctor's office helps a lot. Like my kid's dad is straight-sized. He's had a lot more success talking to the pediatrician about why we're not gonna like get on them about only eating beige foods or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so like, don't be afraid to bring in that privilege to back you up when you need it. I bring my husband to anything financial and anything like that involves like forms and stuff because yeah. it just eases the tension. He's a really nice white guy, but it really helps. Um, any sh I like this question a lot. Any shifts in how you think about friendships? How has sobriety, fat positive lens, divorce impacted friendships? Oh my God, friendships are the best. <laughs> I, oh, Tracy Clark Flory, who's a great writer, just wrote a piece on her newsletter about platonically dating your friends. Mm, yes. And I think I, I talked about this when I was on yes. your podcast. Yes. <laughs> I had just come from a blissful weekend where I spent a lot of time in bed with a friend watching Love is Blind. Yes. Yeah. It was wonderful. Yes. <laughs> and I think a big shift I've made as I'm, you know, now not partnered is like understanding we have this hierarchy of relationships in our culture and heterosexual romantic partnership is like the top of the pinnacle. And when you're doing that, you often end up leaving all these other relationships. Even if you're still invested in them, they're just like getting less of you. Yeah. And so I really love that my friends are getting more of me now and that I'm getting more of my friends. Yeah. yeah. And for me, what I found is that I, I mean, I love my friends and my people. My community is everything to me. I can grow my community. Like, I have found, like, deep, meaningful friendships with people who I met in, like, Zoom rooms talking about sobriety, right? And there are people who, like, with this particular 
disease that I have, that community of people, I'm just able to go there with them and talk to them, and it's been everything. Like, I don't think that sobriety is something that I could have done alone. I know it. There's no way I could have done it. I could do it alone. No way I'm doing it alone. And I needed people beyond the people who knew me, just as much for myself, because I didn't have to feel ashamed or anything. I could talk to people who, like, understood exactly what I was going through. And, you know, other friends, it's like, yeah, I could get it. It could be tiresome to talk about these things over and over. So, yeah, like, you can always make new friends and find new wonderful friendships. I love that. And I was just going to add, like, I think for fat folks, like, having other fat friends is crucial because I think there is, again, a shorthand and a just shared experience that, I mean, I have a lot of thin friends and they're great, but, yeah. (laughs) Okay, this will be our last question before we move on into the sort of closing. And I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of the questions, but this one says, I have zero qualms about being the family member to interrupt racist, colonialist, sexist, classist, et al. narratives. So why am I totally unable to talk with people I love, most notably my family, about the ways their anti-fatness harms not only me and my family, but them too? Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the most common questions I get asked. And, you know, I don't believe in an oppression Olympics at all. Like, all of these issues are hard and complicated and nuanced in their own ways. But fat is the bias that I think, like, we don't have a lot of fat pride parades. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're still working on building fat pride. I mean, we're doing it. We're getting there. And there is, like, decades of fat activism that's laid this foundation. But this is one where we internalize it and we put it on ourselves in a way that I think it can be easier to call out racism and be clear that, like, this person is the bad guy for saying the racist thing. I am not bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that's the universal experience. Obviously, I'm white and I don't experience it. But for someone naming it, you feel like I can name this thing that I can see is unequivocally bad. And when it comes to fatness, we're much quicker to be like, well, I feel uncomfortable like this, but it's probably my fault. And if I was thin, I wouldn't have to feel bad about this. Like, we're just mm-hmm. much quicker to buy into the system. And I think a helpful exercise is sometimes if you're hearing a fat joke or an anti-fat statement and you're like, should I call it out? Should I not call it out? Like, insert, like, what if they said black? What if they said gay? And say to yourself, like, oh, I would, like, immediately name this. And then this is the same. Like, recognize that this, you yeah. do the work here, too. Yeah. I think it's, it is really, really hard to, like, that piece of the question that's like, how do you tell someone this is harming you, too? Mm. Right? Yeah. I think that's hard because people don't want to hear it. No. People don't want to believe it. And it's also... It's just like a thing, it's a hard thing to say. Like, you're like lobbing these things at me, but actually, like, what does it reflect about you? Like, that's a really hard thing to say to family, but I think, I don't necessarily have an answer, but I think that there's that way of, like, what do we have in common and what do we lose? It goes back to that question, right, of, like, what what trauma caused your thinness, right? Like, maybe it's just your body type or maybe it's years of, like, being controlled or years of trying to please people or... I don't know, like thinking about the ways that which like our fates are tied together. I mean, one thing I like to do, because often how this comes out, and the reason I think it is also hard to call out, is people are saying deprecating things about themselves. Mm. Like, you know, I'm so fat or I shouldn't eat the cookie or whatever it is. And I think what can be helpful in that moment is, you know, we often want to rush in and say like, well, I know you're not fat, which is 
sort of problematic because now you've just... I know, sometimes I'm like, no, I, I am a little. It's okay. I, yeah, it's great. It's great. And then you're reinforcing the idea that fatness is bad. But if you instead say something like, I really hate that our culture makes us feel like we have to apologize for eating mm. and like immediately shift the blame over to the system and to the larger issue. Now you have formed that allyship with them. We are both experiencing this without you saying to them, like, you, Grandma, are experiencing anti-fatness. <laughs> like, she may not be ready for that. But you can say, like, I really hate the way society makes us feel so bad about our bodies all the time. Yeah. And now you've just, like, joined forces a little bit. So we wrap up every Burnt Toast podcast with butter for your burnt toast, which is our recommendation segment. So even though this is a different type of episode than we normally do, Angela, what is your butter today? Okay. So I was getting dressed to come here, and I was like, what of my cute outfits do I want to wear? <laughs> and I, I obviously settled on a giant one-piece denim romper and this oversized blazer because I've been thinking for the last few weeks about this idea. Someone was like, oh, it's really flattering. And I was like, flattering? Like, what do we mean when we say flattering? Like, you should wear something that's flattering. Like, black is so flattering. Or, like, a high waist is really flattering on you. Like, it means it's thin. It makes you look thinner. It means it's like flattening, right? Literally. And so flattening I was your body. like, I don't think I like that as like what flattering is. Flattering should be like what makes something look its best. And when I feel my best, I'm I'm comfortable. And so I'm in my oversize era. <laughs> and I've decided that like flattering can be oversized and drapey and yeah, it's just about, like, my butter, I guess, is sort of, like, flipping that idea of what flattering is to being, what do I think flattering is what do you for want me and what makes me feel my best. I love that we both wore oversized denim. We were having, like, a mind meld. Yes. We did not plan We didn't outfits. plan it. I did specify comfortable shoes, which we did both do, yes. but, yeah. We I did, listened. We did the oversized <laughs> denim, which I love. Yeah, my butter is very related, which is packing for this trip, which is the last stop on the Fat Talk book tour. As I packed my suitcase to come here, I packed no jeans. <laughs> I packed no heels. <laughs> and I packed no underwire bras. And this feels... I mean, that's big. That's big. <laughs> this feels really big for me, so, Yeah. We are recommending comfortable clothes that you take up space in. Yeah, flattering. Yeah. And what that means to you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much. This was an amazing conversation, Angela. Thank you so much to Town Hall and to Seattle for being here with us. So, yeah, thank you, Town Hall. Thank you all so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, make sure to follow us for free in your podcast player. You can follow Angela Garbez on Substack at Don't Need a Reason. Don't Need a Reason. Don't Need a Reason. You can follow her on Instagram at Angela Garbez. You can subscribe to the Burnt Toast newsletter at virginiasoulsmith.substack. And I'm also on Instagram at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by the wonderful Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus. Some Corinne fans in the audience are like it. An Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti diet journalism.